0: Good morning, church family. It is good to be with y'all. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning after that shellacking LSU got it fans of Mississippi State. Any Mississippi State fans out there this morning? Richard Massey, I owe you some shout-outs, brother. Uh, he sent me a mean text right before I went to bed, and I had trouble sleeping last night. Um, so I, I need to be renewed this morning, church, and I need to be refreshed. And I hope you all will be too. We're going to be speaking about holiness and scripture today. I'm going to be jumping around in the text, but we're going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to open by talking to you a little bit about your Bible, the Bible that you have in your hand. I want to read the Apostle Paul's words to a young man that he was training for ministry um, in a letter that he wrote this young man. And he tells this young man named Timothy... Uh, the following things that all scripture, all of scripture, not just some, not most, not nearly all, but every single word in your Bible was God breathed. What we believe here at White Sarah Church is that the Bible was written by men who were moved by God, and it is without error, and it is infallible. That means if the Bible says it, it is irrefutably true. And irrefutable truth, that's just a a Scrabble player's best effort at not only winning the Scrabble game, but making himself sound like he's intelligent. That is a Scrabble player's best description of a truth... That keeps proving itself true over and over and over and over again. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'll live your life by words that God himself breathed into men as they were moved by God, then you will win in life. You will win in life. That's what we teach here at WFR Church. The other thing I want you to know is that your Bible is reliable. Before I get into the second part of this verse, I want to remind you of three things that as a a preacher and as a very amateur scholar, I regularly look to and think of to help me recall the reliability of our Bible. And I hope this is review for you, but if it's not, these would be really interesting notes to write down. The first thing I want to share about the Bible being God breathed and it being reliable and it being without error and it being infallible, which means it's irrefutably true, which means as as you live life, the scriptures will prove themselves true to you time and time and time again. The first point I want you to know is that we have over five thousand with three zeros. We have over five thousand partial or Complete manuscripts of the New Testament alone. We have over five thousand partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament alone. So here's what happens: these universities with lots of money send people overseas to areas recorded in the Scripture, and those people they dig and they mine and they search for um, clues as to what was happening during, during biblical times and things that were going on, and these people end up finding documents that have partial or complete copies of the New Testament written in them. And we have over 5,000. I want you to know this. None of those documents disagree. And of particular importance is is that none of them disagree theologically. There are no theological disagreements amongst any of those five, over 5,000. It's actually closer to 6,000 now. This This stat is from a book that's about seven years old. There is no major theological disagreement between any of those documents in the New Testament that we have on record. All right? Let me compare that for you. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Let me see a show of hands. Okay? That's based on a a piece of writing. That's A lot of you guys have seen it. That's based on a piece of writing by a man named Homer, and it's called the Odyssey, okay? Before Homer wrote the Odyssey, he wrote a a story called the Iliad, all right? Um, And the Iliad, we have 650 copies of it. So we have 650 copies of the Iliad. That was written around 700 B.C., plus or minus a couple of hundred years. Just to give you some scale... We have almost 10 times the amount of New Testament manuscripts on hand than we do of this ancient piece of liter- literature, which is kind of the next in line in terms of the number of manuscripts that we have, okay? Another group of, of, of uh, documents that we have lots of copies of that's from the ancient world is, is a group of stories or plays by a guy named Euripides, and he wrote a series of tragedies which are plays... And short stories, and we have, and I wrote this down for you, about 330 copies of those. So in terms of reliability, we have almost 10 times more manuscript copies of the New Testament alone than we do of any other ancient document. So in terms of it being reliable, it's ten times more reliable, more validated, more um, confirmed than any other old uh, old um, um, classical piece of literature from around that same time. Okay? The second thing I want you to know is that the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem happened about AD 70. And for the sake of time, I can't go into all of that history. Okay? But if you're thinking, well, the destruction of Jerusalem was in A.D. 70 And I'm not reading about it in the New Testament You're right, it's not in there What we interpret that, people who kind of study the Scripture Is that all the New Testament letters and Gospels Would have been written prior to A.D. 70 All the New Testament documents and Gospels Would have been written prior to A.D. 70 Why is this important? And I can't go into all this, but this is a very interesting study. And I want you guys to think about this and research this. I personally date the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ to A.D. 33. Okay? So if the Lord Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D. And the New Testament was written before A.D. 70, that's about a 40-year difference. It's actually 37 years in between the time the last New Testament book would have been written and the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? Which means that some people who were alive for the crucifixion of Jesus would have still been living while those New Testament w- writers were writing their letters and sending them to the small churches that had started to become established in the New Testament. And we have no record of those people who would have been alive during that time going, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. This is not how this happened." This is not this actual story of what happened to Jesus, or this is not this actual story of this miracle that was performed, or this is not actually how this happened in history. Instead, the literature that we do have around that time, and one, one main guy's name is Josephus. If you've ever studied a lot about that time period or read a lot about it, uh, his name's going to pop up a lot. His record of history actually confirms... Most of what the New Testament records, lots of our records from that time period, validate the accuracy and the reliability of the scriptures. On that note, we have a document called the Magdalene Papyrus, and it's it's called P64, and this is what it looks like. And most scholars date this somewhere around 74 to 85 A.D., okay? So what this means is, this is not a, a, an original copy of the New Testament manuscript from the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter, which actually tells a little bit of the story of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus, Okay? This is not, this is not an authentic copy, but it's the oldest copy we think that we have, and it's dated around 75 AD, again, within the time frame of people who would have still been alive to invalidate the story, and we've got no testimonies of invalidation. As a matter of fact, Every testimony from that time frame confirms the teachings and the truths that are contained in Scripture. Your Bible is a reliable document. If you got a pen, write down 7Q5. It's an interesting search on Google later this afternoon. It's from the Gospel of Mark. And it's, by some, dated around the 30s or 40s uh, A.D. You know, So either right after the crucifixion. Um, or, or up to 10 years after now, again, that's sometimes hotly debated, but the point is, we've got over 5,000 partial or complete copies of the New Testament, none of them disagree, and most of them are dated within the length of time of people's lives who would have experienced the ministry of Jesus, at least the latter part, and had exposure to these documents, and there's no disconfirmation. As a matter of fact, when people are writing on the reliability of Scripture from that time frame, they're saying it's accurate, this really did happen, and it's valid. So the book that you brought in your hand this morning is the most reliable ancient manuscript we have in the universe. And time and time again, over 5,000 times, and with many other uh, writers from this time period, these writings are validated. So when we say this is God-breathed, I want to go back to 2 Timothy And we say this is infallible and it's inerrant. The truths are self-evident. They will prove themselves true in your life time and time again. I'm not just saying that simply because I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But there's also very well-respected scholarly evidence that backs up that truth. I want you to treat the Bible as such. Now, not only is Scripture God breathed, but it's also useful for something. Scripture's God breathed, it's also useful for something. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. God has given you His reliable, breathed word so that you can use it for the good works that He has planned For you to do, so often I'm wondering, God, what are the good works you intend for me to do in my life? What's your plan? What's your process? What's your purpose? And I'm expecting that to just come through some miraculous writing on the wall. And God's saying, Trent, I've given you my reliable, inerrant, infallible word, which is useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. Here's what I think God wants us to understand about this That through the scriptures, this is a point I want you to write down You are thoroughly prepared And equipped But God's not pushing you or forcing you to carry out what he's teaching you in his word In the scriptures, you're thoroughly equipped and that means prepared And not pushed God is not going to violate your capacity to choose whether or not you surrender to the teachings of his word and the leadership of his spirit. But he is thoroughly equipping you, which makes you prepared. Um, Yesterday morning, my oldest son, who's eight, he'll be nine in December, played in his first uh, peewee football game with full pads. And after I watched the LSU game, I thought his team may have done a better job at playing Mississippi State. Um, and, you know, as a dad, and if you've ever parented uh, young kids, male or female, probably you can relate to what I'm about to say. But, man, I'm like, get out there and just, just crush somebody. Man. Just hurt them. And my son's kind of like, I mean, his posture, you can visibly see it, you know, shift. And he's like, well, Dad, I mean, we're, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. I'm like, son, any, anywhere but the football field, please. So, so what I want him to do, and you, you dads who have raised sons have been through this, and you younger men out there who are raising kids, my kids' age, you're going through this right now. That, that self-actualization process, in, in Louisiana, the way you say that, it, it, and you're gonna know this, is having the want. You know what I'm talking about? You, you just gotta have the want. You gotta go out there, and you gotta want to take somebody's head off. But man, for these little guys having the want, it is just not there. And I, I think too, man, I've tried to raise my kids, teaching them kindness, you know, and respect, and grace, and humility, and gratitude. And so, you know, my son's coming off the uh, field, and he's like, "Man, Dad, did you see that other play? The team ran that was great. You know, those guys have a really fast running back. Man, he did such a good job running that I feel like Bud, you're exactly right." praise the Lord, praise the Lord. <clears throat> so here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I can equip my son to step out on the field and take somebody's head off. Right. And I, I can assure you and my uh, checkbook would reflect this. My wife and I have purchased a helmet and shoulder pads and pants with pads And shoes, and it feels like I bought the kid a new car and he's only eight years old, right? I can equip him and I can set him on the field. And he can be thoroughly prepared. Man, we pass the football all the time, he's gone to practice, he knows the rules. Everything I can do as a parent, that's my role, is to get him equipped and and prepared to play. But I cannot, no matter how much I want to, go out on the field and play the game for him. I can't do it. He has to learn to want to win. To want to get tough. To want to do what he can do as aggressively as he can to the best of his abilities. He has to do that, not me. And it's the same thing with each of you. You have to get tough. You have to want to do it. There's a few rhyming words that I was thinking of as I was preparing for this. The scriptures inspect you and allow you to inspect yourself. Where are the deficits in my equipment? Where are the weak points in my game? The scriptures will point that out. They'll inspect you and they'll direct you on how to make improvements in those areas. They don't just inspect you and like, man, Trent, you got these big time weaknesses. (laughs) I hope you make it okay. It's not just inspection. It's also direction. They'll direct you how to improve in the areas of your weakness. And then when you try to improve and you fail, and that's the process of life, that's what makes life so difficult, when you, when you try that and you fail, they'll offer you a little bit of correction. They'll inspect you and allow you to inspect yourself. They'll direct you. They'll correct you. And in times when you don't have the strength to do what you need to do, they'll protect you. Just like those pads my son is wearing. And that's what I'm trying to get him to do now. I'm like, bud, that helmet you got and those pads you got, I mean, you can really let loose and you're going to be fine. Because mom and dad, we've provided some protection for you. You're equipped, bud. Get out there. Get tough, and take somebody's head clean off. <laughs> and 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 that's in a much more appropriate way what God is telling each of us. And that's what the process to holiness looks like. That's what the process of holiness looks like. Holiness, right there, I think, in, in a lot of ways in the Scripture is synonymous with every good work. With every good work. I think holiness and Scripture just so correspond because it's the Scriptures that teach us how to be Holy. It's the book that God gave you that's verified over 5,000 times, none of which are in uh, contradiction, that's extremely well respected, and all of which would have been written during a time that we would have had contradictory evidence if any existed, and we don't. And so when Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you're, you're equipped thoroughly for every good work, what that means in your life is you are prepared for holiness, but God can't do it for you. He's not going to. He's just nudging you. He's just preparing you. He's just equipping you. And it's up to you. Holiness in the New Testament, uh, excuse me, in the Old Testament, holiness, the root word for holiness, is the same root word that means to be cut off or separate. Let me tell you another story from my uh, family. We are in watching TV the other day. And this is going to be loud, so plug your ears. But from the kitchen, me and the kids are in watching a, a ball game. And Kirsten in the kitchen, I hear this, this noise from the kitchen. Ah! And so I run in, and Kirsten is like doubled over in pain just like this. And she has sliced into her finger so bad that she cut into the nail. Right? Yeah, exactly. And she just, ooh, she's all shriveled up. And I said, babe, what, what happened? She's like, man, I cut my finger real bad. And I was like, well, how did you do that? <laughs> and she said, I was buttering toast. And I'm like, that's the kind of aggression I'm talking about. When we butter, the, when we butter toast in this family, we butter us some toast. Huh? You are prepared, girl. That's what's up. And then I thought to myself, like, man, if, if she's that aggressive buttering toast, where do my kids get their kind of passivity from? Surely that can't be for me. So look, the the process of being made holy sometimes involves a measure of pain. The process of being made holy sometimes involves a measure of pain. Man, it hurts to cut. I was vicariously experiencing some pain and I knew, man, that hurt. It, It hurts to be cut off from the world, to be separate and apart from the world. It's not easy. It's not fun. It's not popular. And it doesn't feel good all the time. Sometimes it just downright hurts. And and, and, when, and when we start talking about uh, uh, holiness in the New Testament, the, the root word is hagios, which is the same root word that means saint or sanctification. That We translate that word kind of uh, based on its... Uh, um, Spelling uh, in in those two different ways in the New Testament, and so sometimes holiness in Scripture means we just have to cut some things out of our life. We just have to cut things like lust and pornography and drugs and alcohol and overspending on sales that are at the mall and eating too much and. Um, You gambling, some things we just have to cut right out of our lives. And when it's abrupt and happens fast like that, sometimes it really hurts because we lose what feels like an old friend. But that word hagios that talks about holiness being sanctification, that's more a slow, gradual transformation process over time so not only do we have to cut some stuff off right when right when the scriptures reveal it but we also have to allow the scriptures and god's word to transform us and change us over time peter knew about this i've got this up on the screen for you when he says this as obedient children don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance don't go back to playing Pee Wee League football where you're equipped and thoroughly prepared, but you don't have the want. And don't allow all the junk that was in your life that kept you from being aggressive and winning on the field and staying tough. Don't let any of that junk back into your life. But just as God who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy as I the Lord am holy. That's in Leviticus. Leviticus. Don't, don't go back. Keep moving forward. There's a couple of things I, I want to tell you about holiness to wrap this up. The first thing is that holiness is something you have to do for yourself. God is not going to do it for you. Holiness is something you got to do. Now, I, my, my theology sounds like I put way too much responsibility on man and way not enough on God. But practically speaking in the moment to moment grind of the football game of life that you're playing in, we got to act as though God's saying you do it. And in our weakness, in the areas where we just aren't going to catch the running back who somehow got around to the outside and's blitzing it downfield, that's the moment we're expecting the Holy Spirit because of our surrender to carry us faster than we thought we could go for farther than we thought we could run. So absolutely, holiness is something that the Spirit is doing in you day by day. The Spirit will help you to, to make those painful incisions in your life where you got to cut some stuff out of your life. And the Spirit will develop you into the image of Jesus Christ over time. But I want you to think about the effort you've got to put in and not take this uh, laissez-faire, that means just hands-off, Just this lazy, apathetic approach. No, I bet our stud middle linebacker. He'll take care of it for me. You know, man, we we got a good quarterback. I'm just going to stay here at right right guard and just you know protect this guy. I'm going to let him and the other guys on the team do the work. No, you do it. And when Jesus is talking about love and how difficult some of this stuff is in Matthew chapter five, when he preaches this incredible sermon and and i could have gone into the verification we have in the gospel of matthew that the sermon on the mount is reliable that's another really cool confirmation of the new testament but jesus says it like this you you have to challenge yourself to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect that's jesus's words what i think he's telling you church is you got to have the want you got to have the want you got to go on to the field And want to just whip somebody's head off. And sometimes that means your own. Sometimes it's stuff in you that needs to be cut off and surrendered and purified. Okay, But you have to be willing to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. you got to have the want and that's your standard. When I was reading this and I was thinking about the football metaphor because of the football game my son had and the debacle that happened yesterday... Uh, evening, I, I was thinking, God does not want a, an individual who's satisfied with second place. God wants the people in his kingdom to battle for the championship. That's the God that we serve. When Jesus is saying, be perfect, he's saying, that's the kind of want I want you to have. I don't want you to settle for second place. Go, Thank God I'm better than everybody else and only not as good as that guy. Man, get out there and have that want, have the desire to surrender and be tough and to win. That's what God's trying to teach us this morning. Okay, the other thing I want to mention here, I just got two more things. Uh, the, The next one is that holiness involves abandoning the things you thought were comfortable and moving into the unknown. Holiness involves abandoning the things you thought were comfortable and moving into the unknown. You know, this is a problem Jesus ran into consistently in the New Testament. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is teaching here and he, he, he makes this statement, which is kind of where I'm extrapolating this from. He says, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. and He's like, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe the things that think, that make you most comfortable. You've got a pretty good way of setting aside the things that God's teaching to puff yourself up, to make your life easy, to make your life enjoyable, to make your life fun, and to make yourself ha- happy. And life is about none of those things. Cause sometimes to win the championship, you gotta put forth a lot of effort that just feels like you are getting your tail kicked. And you walk off the field just beat up and bloody and feeling broken, and it hurts. There ain't always happiness in a win. And furthermore, sometimes it takes a loss to really develop you into the player or the team that you're intended to be. And boy, that's way out of most of our comfort zones. (laughs) I only want to go to the gym on the days where I'm doing the lift that I can lift the most weight so I can really bang those weights around and everybody up in the gym can see kind of what I'm doing. But it's those weak areas, it's those comfort zone struggle areas that we really got to get out. And that's what Jesus is saying. Even people in the New Testament who are seeing Jesus' miracles are setting aside the things that he's teaching because their own traditions are more fun, more life-giving, easier, make them happier. And God's saying, this is about your holiness, not about your happiness. This is about cutting stuff out of your life that doesn't need to be there, which is painful, and allowing the Spirit to sanctify you over time, which can also be a struggle. But you're equipped thoroughly for that process. Last thing I want to mention is that holiness will definitely be developed the greatest during the most difficult times of your life. Kirsten and I, we talk about this a lot. There's just so much to my story. There was a time where I worked... At night, for two years, 15-hour shifts from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I went to school Monday through Friday. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I went to school from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I had an internship from 9 to 5. And so when we calculated it up, the, the actual amount of sleep I could get was like 40 some hours, like possible in a week. And we did that for over two years in that process. I got a degree. We had two and we had two kids and we're still not totally insane, you know, so we made it. But, but I'll tell you this, having three kids and being away from family and working with people, man, there's some times that are are stressful But we always, like, lay in bed at night and go, man, thank God we're both sleeping in the bed tonight and I don't have to work all night because that's what we did for over two years. But those two years were so tough on us. I would walk in the door and um, Kirsten would be in tears. Our oldest son, Adrian, was just really colicky. We knew nothing about being parents. And so we held this kid, as God is my witness, there are 168 hours in a week. We held this kid 169 hours in a week. So I'd, I'd, get, I'd get in Saturday morning, and I was up for like 24 hours. You know, every single Saturday morning I had been up since Friday at 9. And so I, I would get in, and she'd just be in tears. And she'd be like, you've been up all night. I, I just can't. Can you take him? And I'd be like, I've been up all night. I, just, I don't feel like I can take him. But but you know we 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 were surrendered to Jesus Christ and we were equipped even though we didn't feel like it and you push through and then now during the stressful times in our marriage we can look back and go yeah this is tough but we really kicked tail at a way tougher time than this so we're gonna go out there we're gonna crush somebody's skull. Paul puts it like this and this is a really powerful verse. As far as holiness is concerned. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, For Christ's sake, when I'm weak and in insults and in persecutions and in difficulties, he doesn't just survive in those moments. He thrives in those moments. He says, they cause me some kind of internal... Imagine this. Delight. Because Paul understands that it's in the most difficult moments of his life that he becomes... More holy. And life will teach us. That's a self-evident truth, by the way. Ask any athlete. Ask any person who's ever done any kind of education. Ask anybody who's been married for 20 plus years or longer. All good things in life require lots of effort. But the payoff in the end is always much greater if you hang in through the tough times. Can I get an amen from somebody out in the church? So he says, when I am weak, this is the beauty and the power and the majesty of our God in our weaknesses. Church, that's when we're the strongest. So it's in the struggles you face in life that cause you to be dependent more on God that you find your greatest victory. So whatever that situation is in your life right now that you're battling with, if you become more dependent on God in that process, then let me just tell you, you've already won. You have. So, last thing I want to say this is the summary of the whole thing. You need to always let the Spirit and the Scriptures be your guide. I was given a compass uh, by a mentor of mine. He said, Son, just follow your true north, and you'll never be misled. And the true north on the compass is in the shape of a cross. So here's how this works. If we're lost in the woods together, uh, you need to be terrified because I'm the like, last person on the planet you want to be lost in the woods with, all right? Uh, but if that should happen, it would definitely increase your faith. But you've got to get your compass and you've got to point it at true north. And let that compass be your guide. So you get your compass, you point it at true north, you figure out where you need to go, you put the compass in your pocket and you walk for a ways. And after you've walked for a ways, you get the compass back out, you recheck your 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 direction and make sure you're still pointed the right way. You, you connect your compass around where true north is, then you keep walking. And you do that again and again and again and again and again. And eventually you're out of the woods and you've led me out too. That's what the spirit and the scriptures that's the purpose they serve these these this is your compass And it should be your true north And you got to go back to it again and again and again and again in life But if you never let too much time pass Between the last time you went here and sought after god's direction and the time you're seeking at it after it, the moment You go here. I promise you you will always be on the right path And it's a pathway to holiness it's a pathway that some of you need to reassess right now. You need, to, you, need to, you, need to, you need to double check where you're at. I'm going to close in prayer. And I invite you this morning, if, if you have felt like, man, I've got to get back on track. I've got to cut some stuff out of my life. I've got, got to surrender more. I need to work on my holiness. I invite you to come forward. Let us pray with you. We want to walk alongside uh, you in that process. So bow with me as we pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. God, I'm uh, just so grateful for how in my life your spirit and your word have guided me. And it is that guidance that has totally and completely changed and transformed my life. And I thank you for that. And I ask that if anyone here needs to live by that truth more fully, that they will respond this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. Please stand while together we sing.